pelvis. Dear young rocker, life can feel so heavy at times, but if it wasn't, it wouldn't mean as much. The most challenging times are the most beautiful times. Someday you'll look back and it'll pass so quick, just like youth. The confusion and being scared and not knowing what's in store for you or what exactly you want. Just remember, in the thick of grief, those are the last moments you'll have with someone. So sit with it for as long as you want. Just don't let it consume you and win. You don't have to get over your grief. You're allowed to just sit with it. And the remnants of grief, like dust of what you once knew, circulating in the air, will eventually clear. And you'll even one day miss this. The dread, the dizziness, the disorientation that consumes your entire body. You'll wake up one day, and luckily, that disorientation will leave you. You'll even eventually grieve grieving, missing those early stages of grief. Grief sticks in your lungs like humid Georgian summer air. Breathing in, feeling all the weight, and then one day, breathing it all out. Suddenly, it's September, and you're missing that once thick and impossible summer air. Be sure to enjoy even the worst of it, because one day, you'll even miss that too. Young Rocker. It had been six months since the accident. I was at the point of amnesia where I had mostly recovered. I was back to working a few different jobs, back to art school. I'd played a handful of harp shows, but it didn't feel right. I could go through the motions, but the motions weren't mine. They didn't belong to me. I tried to sculpt with clay, but... It just fell flat. The cakes I baked were too dry. It wasn't that I didn't like the things I'd once done. It just didn't feel like me anymore. I didn't love the things I once loved. My heart wasn't in it in the same way. Our hearts define ourselves. So now who was I? What did my heart desire out of life? It reminded me of when I started over before after spending time with my grief and how I ended up in New York City. I left Atlanta. I switched out bar stools for coffee shop chairs and I was now sitting in a cafe in New York City writing in my new journal. My friend from Atlanta that I've been crashing with is making me a sandwich from behind the counter. You might be thinking, how did I end up here? living in an apartment in Brooklyn, down the hall from the guys in Grizzly Bear and MGMT. And it's kind of a funny story. And it all started with a water balloon. Let me go back about 
a year. After Kyle died, we got a letter in the mail that there was a recall and a defect in his insulin pump. Even though it was a huge piece of the puzzle, why he fell into a coma, why he was acting so irrational all of a sudden, it brought more anger and confusion than it did closure. And because we weren't married yet, there was literally nothing I could do about it. Most of his and our possessions, I'm told, his family donated. After being asked to help with the funeral arrangements, pick out his clothes, eulogize him, sing his favorite song. Once the dust settled, my presence only reminded them of him, and his family told me it was too painful for me to be around. We had always been tied at the hip. I moved back in with my mom, who promised I could live with her if I went back to school full-time. I had gone back to work a month after Kyle's passing, but she wanted me back in school, too. I told her I didn't really know what I wanted to go to school for anymore and didn't want to take out loans in my own name while I was just drifting. I didn't even know who I was now, but that was the arrangement. To go back to the college Kyle used to drive me to on my first day every semester. I now drove myself, even though my tank was now running on fumes of only my grief. Classes that were once so easy for me were suddenly difficult. For the first time ever, I started failing assignments. I couldn't seem to keep it together, and my mother didn't keep her end of the deal. She packed up and moved in with her new fiancé. You can't come live with us. Honestly, you're being a total downer and a bitch. She'd come into my room anytime I wanted to be alone with my grief. Nadia, don't you think it's time to move on? You're, like, so pretty and beautiful and could do so much better than him anyways. My jaw dropped to the floor. Mom, we didn't break up. He just died two months ago. She put the house on the market and told me I had to leave. Between flunking and now being homeless, I had to drop out before I ruined my near-perfect GPA I'd worked so hard on since I was 16. And after months of getting pitiful glances whenever I bumped into Kyle and I's mutuals, I couldn't take it anymore. I knew I had to move. There was no reason to stay in the city we once lived in together, uncomfortably running into all of our old friends every single time I left the house. At the grocery store, at work, in line getting a bite to eat, getting gas on my way to work, every single day. So, I moved, an hour away, to Atlanta, for a fresh start. Dear Diary, currently listening to the Safi Fat, Fading Vibes. I got a second job and decided to pour myself into my work. My goal was to work as many hours as I possibly could, picking up every shift when someone called out, work seven days a week, open to close, get an apartment, get promoted, and work retail forever and ever until I die. I loved working so much. But then, out of nowhere, I got laid off from both of my retail jobs. Even the one I'd had for two years. The recession hit, and everyone got laid off. It didn't matter how much I poured myself into my two jobs, or loved them, or made half of the store sales during Christmas. It just didn't matter. 
So now what do I do? Now who was I? I didn't even have a computer, but I enrolled yet again in college. I signed up for online classes to give myself something to do, something to keep my mind busy. I knew I still loved to read and learn, so I went to the library a few times a week to do schoolwork. I was crashing with my bandmates living out of a suitcase. I knew I still needed time to figure it out, not throw myself into anything else until I knew who I was. And what I wanted was to process the last five months of my life. And then my car broke down for a third time. A boy at the bar I frequent every night felt bad and gave me his old roommate's scooter. Picture this, a red 1984 Honda Spree and me riding around in Kyle's blue Ralph Lauren Oxford, a high-waisted navy skirt, knee-high tights with loafers I thrifted, and a pair of Ray-Bans someone found on the ground. I spent the spring through the middle of summer riding around town on my spree, because when I was riding around, I was free. I spent the entire day exploring what was once a vacant city, learning all the streets and neighborhoods, and falling back in love with listening to music. Music was everything. The thing that was saving me, my escape, the thing that made all of my worries completely disappear. Riding around on my spree and listening to music was saving my life. It was the only time everything around me would melt away and I could just live. Kyle and I always dreamed of moving into the city, getting small matching motorbikes and riding around. So I'd end up listening to music I thought Kyle would be listening to. I put on the Nationals album and drove the back roads from Northwest Atlanta all the way to the Southeast side for hours every day. We played a national song at Kyle's funeral. It was the last band he started getting into before he died. And when I went to see their show at the Tabernacle downtown, only going because I thought Kyle would have been there, I was almost expecting to run into him, telling me it was all a cruel joke. I went with some of our mutual friends, and they all circled around me and put their hands on my shoulders as Start a War started to play. And now, it was May, a year after Kyle died, and I spent the next few months riding around listening to High Violet. I'd put on the song Blood Buzz Ohio and pull out of my bandmate's driveway on Howell Mill Road and just ride. Listening to music, playing in a band, and riding my scooter was now all that I had. I started to feel content where I was, just figuring it out. Until all my new friends in Atlanta and the people at the bar started hearing rumors and piecing together why I moved here. And those sad, failed, pathetic looks with heavy pats on my shoulders started all over again when I was least expecting it. Like standing outside the bar with a crowd of my friends, all laughing and having a good time, smiling and enjoying the last cool nights of spring before the heavy heat of summer started to bite drawing sweat from our ankles. We gathered there every night to commiserate our days. Writers sat in the corner writing, musicians holding band meetings. 
It was like some sort of clubhouse for broken-hearted musicians who started gathering around 2 p.m. and stayed late into the night, closing the bar down every night. And suddenly... I know, Nadia. I know that today was supposed to be your wedding day. A random, drunken girl who didn't even know Kyle burst into tears beside me as if it was her own tragedy. And all I could think was, Ugh, are you serious? I was having a good night. Who the fuck told her? Once people pieced it together, I knew I had to get out of Atlanta. The rumors spread like wildfire, and each time I went back to the bar, I was greeted by another sad look, and then two, and then four. It multiplied whenever I turned my back, mutating like some sort of disease, until I wasn't sure if someone was having a bad day or if they knew my secret and just didn't want to say it. I couldn't take the glances, the way people treated me, the veiled apologies for my past circumstances. I didn't want their fucking pity. I knew I had to leave. One night, I drove my scooter to the Samson Street lofts and pulled up to a party I'd been invited to. And I met a boy who would change everything. I'd been to these lofts before. I'd crashed here in the recording studios of producers who promised to change it all for me, that told me I was a star, that they were gonna change my life. But of all the ways in which coming to these lofts I thought would change my life, I never imagined it would have been by meeting a stranger outside of a random loft party. We talked and flirted. He told me he was moving to New York, and I jokingly asked if he needed someone to drive the truck. Actually, yeah. You want to hop a ride with me? His name was Daniel. He played trumpet around town and had just finished touring with a Grammy award-winning band. Our lives and music were very different. My band was only just now starting to play bigger venues. We were mostly still playing grungy house parties in college towns. Suddenly, I decided to pull out a water balloon and throw it at a car that was driving by. And instead of driving away, the guy put the car in reverse and started screaming at me. This isn't even my fucking car, asshole. You're gonna fucking clean it? Uh, I kinda just fucking did, idiot. It was my summer of mischief. I had spent the entire summer with water balloons in my purse, so at any given moment, I could throw it at some crass boy who was hitting on me outside of a bar, or just disrupt whatever quiet moment was shifting my mind back to Kyle. Please remember that I had just turned 19, the last age that any kind of mischief is seemingly allowed, and I wanted to be as youthful as I could in my last year of it. I got thrown out of the party after throwing the water balloon, but I did get Daniel's number before I was kicked out, and he said he would call me. And so, two weeks later, I hopped in a U-Haul with him and moved to New York City. Apparently, they just hand out U-Haul keys and let anyone drive those things.
I ripped the chunks of pages filled with sad, sappy grief out of my journal and threw it away. I scratched a line with my pen through the first new page and wrote NEW in all caps and started documenting our 12-hour drive to New York City. Friday, August 6, 2010, 7.33 p.m. We finally hit Richmond, Virginia, and it's so incredibly beautiful. This is the first time I felt free in a while, the type of free that makes you want to change, and I can't wait to let it change my life. Currently listening to Bijork Post, I will put up a life's worth of fight to hold and have this for as long as time will allow me to. For once, I will outsmart time. Currently listening to Nancy Wilson, Never Will I Marry. 9.22 p.m., Alexandria, Maryland. Daniel started playing trumpet while I sat driving. He's writing in my diary now as I drive. 12.20 a.m., welcome to Delaware. 5 a.m., we arrive in Queens and unload the entire truck. Woke up in the afternoon, folding laundry and unpacking boxes. Listening to Bonnie Bear, trying to cope with how surreal this all feels. This is the most alive I've felt in a long time. New York is going to be amazing. Music was different for Daniel, and I saw that once we got to New York. And it wasn't just because he was five years older than me, or was friends with and spent time going to strip clubs with John Mayer. He had just played a sold-out show at Madison Square Garden. He was playing national music award shows, and it just helped make a record that won a Grammy. The post-punk strokes New York I'd been dreaming of since I was a 12-year-old girl locked in my bedroom wasn't exactly what I got to see. But what I saw was a world I'd never even dreamed of. Daniel got up and started practicing every day around 8 a.m., waking me up bright and early, holding out one note on his trumpet until it was perfect and playing scales for hours. And then around 5 p.m., we would go out and hit all the jazz clubs in New York until around 3 or 4 in the morning, every single night. The dedication to music I saw while living with him those few short weeks was nothing I'd ever seen in my life. He knew exactly what he was there for, and he was going to work for it. And I was still just aimlessly wandering, wandering into a world I didn't even know was possible. I documented everything in my diary at the time, so I wouldn't forget anything I was seeing. I wrote it all down, trying to figure out how I felt about being there. Was I happy now? At least I was having experiences. The most amazing experiences I had in my entire life. August 9th, 2010, 2.12 a.m. I'm sitting watching jazz at Fat Cats, a nightclub fully equipped with shuffleboard, ping pong, and some of the best jazz musicians in the city. I'm very tired, sleeping only a few hours a night to keep up with Daniel. But being here is the most alive I've felt in a long time, bouncing from jazz club to jazz club all night long. August 11th, 2010. I tried to explain to my mother that I will always be okay, no matter where I am, 
with whatever happens to me from here on out, because the worst has already happened. I will never be that sad again, and I'm happy now, which I never thought I could be. So there, New York makes me happy. I feel like tonight is gonna be a really long night. A friend from Atlanta and I walked around Brooklyn all night. He wants me to move in with him. I'll be living next door to MGMT and Grizzly Bear, and the apartment has an amazing rooftop view. August 13th, 2010. I want so badly to figure things out here. While I waited for more realizations, I kept going places, chasing more and more experiences. One night, we popped into Sway, a nightclub Mick Jagger loves to frequent and where it's socially acceptable for models to do coke off the bar tables. August 19th, 2010. Cod Daniel's first off-Broadway show opening night sat in the front row with yellow daisies and batteries for his metronome, then grabbed a bite to eat with his bandmates after the show. Daniel left for Fat Cats and I went home, itching for some fun. And so I went back out to meet Ben at the Tribeca. But it wasn't all about Daniel and seeing expensive New York practice rooms and recording studios and jazz bars. Heading back on the subway, straight into Manhattan from the Tribeca Hotel. I arrived at 6.45 in the morning on no sleep and just as the sun was rising over the city. We watched from the seventh floor in his presidential suite. I walked into the hotel room and there were broken wine glasses. The mini bar was almost completely empty and the room was a mess. We spent the entire morning polishing off the rest of the mini bar and talking about Atlanta, staying awake watching the sunrise view from room 701. We ordered bowls of live goldfish, bowl after bowl after bowl. Apparently you could just call room service and order huge Japanese goldfish to the room. Ben found it hilarious and ordered one every few minutes. Eventually, I left and hit up Housing Works bookstore without even sleeping or changing for my clothes. August 21st, 2010. I just remembered after karaoke the other night at Union Hall, walking through Times Square trying to get to the right subway after the train shut down. One of Brian's friends and I trying to get back him way less drunk than I was, screaming Karen O in the kids' lyrics, C-A-P-S-I-Z-E all the way home, over and over and over through the streets of New York, wearing a dress, sitting my bare ass on the floor of Grand Central Station, just trying to get back home, which took hours. How I managed to get home or even spell that drunk, I don't know, probably didn't. I got to meet some of my online friends who live in New York now. Frankie, who got me through Kyle's death. He was now in art school in the city and he was in a band. I decided to take the train into Manhattan and surprise him at his first band show. Frankie? Oh my God, Nadia. All of his friends were so kind to me. It felt like we'd all been friends for years. I was having the most amazing time with them. We harmonized to Bonnie Bear together on the roof, filling our lungs with the fleeting summer air, the city skyline watching in front of us. And after I felt comfortable enough to ask, I asked them 
So, uh, how do you guys do it? Where does your band even practice? What are the logistics? And they told me. Well, we practice at a house in Jersey. One guy has a van. It's this guy's parents' house. It takes us like a few hours to get there. And as far as rent, my parents help out a little bit. Yeah, my parents help me out too. And it suddenly hit me. Most of the time, I was meeting people in New York who had some type of help from their parents. Or at least had parents. Even Daniel's parents helped him pay rent. No judgment whatsoever. I just realized, how could I ever do it? August 24th, 2010. Really stressing out about money. Not enough loan money came through. No place to live yet until Adam's roommate moves out. Insurance accidentally charged me double this month. Now I barely have enough money to get back. I'm so broke. Once my scholarship money came in for my online classes, it was half of what I was expecting. I realized after putting together a six-month budget, I couldn't make it here. Not in the way I wanted to. I couldn't have the life I wanted in New York. But I could have it in Atlanta. So I decided to move back. I got my last cup of coffee from the hip Brooklyn coffee shop down the street. Sitting in the corner of a packed room was a literal girl model singing, of course, Bonnie Vare. She was the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen playing guitar with the most beautiful voice. And no one was even listening to her set. How was I ever supposed to make it here? How would I ever do it? Aside from my summer of realizations, I had the most beautiful experience in New York City. I now sat on the fire escape of Daniel's apartment, writing in my journal and staring out at the city, thinking about all the experiences I'd had this summer and how badly I wanted to be here. But this didn't feel like where I was supposed to be right now. In this moment, everything hit me all at once. August 20th, 2010, 1.36 p.m. I'm writing from the Housing Works bookstore in Manhattan. August 21st, 2010, day, slash head into the Bucks for a shot, and we walked around the city and went to Lexington and the 6th to Astor, the Southern Mount Hall, Frankie, went to Sunday from the Housing Works bookstore in Manhattan for a hangout's rooftop. And I sang out loud. New York, city's like a light. It burns up just to blow out And I don't think I'm like those girls You'll read about in your book November 5th, 2010. I'm about to play my first show in Atlanta with my new band, Curio Museum. 
My manager, Julian, said there's over a hundred people here already and we're getting paid 120 bucks. We've only had a few practices, but it all just clicked so naturally. It feels like fate. My old bandmate from my last Atlanta band, Maddie, knew John, who knew Zach, and I knew Chris from when he played with my band in high school a few times. We just formed a couple weeks ago and already a hundred people showed up to see us play. It's already feeling so surreal. After we played Star Bar and Little Five Points, Curio Museum, the post-punk band I was leading, became almost an instant success in a way I don't think any of us were ready for. We got compared to the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Jefferson Airplane, and La Savie Feve. We'd played sold-out shows and started opening for bigger touring bands. Curio Museum just happened so easily. It felt effortless. We were just playing around. The chemistry was just there. I would come to them with a demo I made in GarageBand, and the band would turn it into something meaner, with more density, more depth, and more grit than I could have ever imagined. Sometimes during rehearsal, I would ask everyone to play random bits of sound all at once, or riffs that they were working on, playing all at one time. In the build of chaos, I would hear a song. Okay, stop. Okay, Johnny, you play this. No, 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 no. Like swingy, swing it. That solo you played from last practice, the thing that was like this. I love that solo you wrote, and so play that once we all come in. And Chris, you come in one measure later, and then Zach, you come in with this for four measures. And then we'll drop out, and then speed it up when we come back in, then drop out again. Then play that other thing that we wrote last practice that I made. Okay, follow my lead to know when the time changes will be. Okay, ready? Go. I would wave my hands in the air conducting them, and they seemed to instantly understand the form of sign language I was creating, directing them to stop or continue or speed up or change rhythm patterns. Zach knew when I was signaling him to speed up or build or suddenly drop off and then come in harder. It was the most fun way to write music. And sometimes I even sang about what I loved most, Kyle. Hey, Chris, can you start that bass part you wrote? Okay, loop that bass for a second while I write the lyrics. Okay, now Zach. I'm gonna start singing, and then you come in with a kick and build it a little with cymbals, like bum 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 bum, and then drop off. And when I signal you, then Johnny, you'll come in playing a solo, and then the band will come back after one measure, harder than ever. Cha 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 cha, and we'll go into the chorus. Okay, ready? Go. 
took off. Almost immediately, we started getting plays on college radio stations. The same college radio station I'd been listening to driving to my new high school in 2004. Georgia State University's radio, WRAS album 88. And the entire front row at our shows would be singing along, knowing all the words to every song. Doing the hand motions I did with each lyric, they had all of my moves memorized like some sort of pop star fandom. By our third show, we were already selling out venues. There were maybe only two other bands in Atlanta with a female lead singer that weren't singing twee or folk music or something soft and sweet or even performing at local venues at all. And some people told me I was paving the way for something bigger. But even if our name was headlining Bills, I'd still get stopped by almost every door guy while carrying in the band's gear. Sorry, even girlfriends gotta pay the door. The sexism that existed during this time in music was almost unbearable. But I would just take that anger, anger from the door guy, or the two guys outside saying patronizing things, or hitting on me aggressively, and bring it to the stage. I jump around and beat myself, breaking wooden tambourines on my leg on stage at every show, standing on our drummer's bass head, then jumping off to scream the chorus. At every show, I'd wear a bag over my face, then rip it off the first song whenever I screamed. Curio was invited to headline a New Year's Eve show. And I asked if I could be the opener and perform a harp set. Yeah, of course. Anything you want to play, we're down for. And then... It hit me. I had a month to get a harp, teach myself all the songs I'd written in my head, and then play the show. These are the things I was determined. And I did it. With sheer willpower, determination, dedication, and discipline. I locked myself in a room for a month during the winter break and learned how to play the harp. And every time I fumbled, I did it again and again and again until I got it right. Until my fingers started to bleed and I would stop and take a break and then put some super glue on my fingers and then start again. But as effortless as writing the music came and as popular as Curio Museum got, the boys couldn't handle the notoriety. There were girls trying to play Pokemon with the band members and sleep with all of them, some even making passes at me. I felt like overnight, Kiryu became something we weren't ready for, and I became band mom. You guys aren't allowed to drink anymore before we play, because a few of you got too fucked up at our last show and messed up every single song. And you have to stop sleeping with girls when we play out-of-town gigs. Stop bringing home drunk girls from our shows. Stop acting so horrible. You're going to give us a bad reputation, and you aren't being respectful to these girls. Someone is going to get hurt. But it was hard trying to keep everyone in line. With how popular we were getting, it felt like it was going to their heads. We were now getting handfuls of emails a day 
with serious paying offers for gigs. We had had endless opportunities to choose from anytime we opened our email. We were opening for Fang Island and Born Ruffians. In 2010 to 2012, the climate of the music scene was a lot different. Not only did white men rule the entire scene, but getting fucked up every night and hooking up with a different person was kind of the norm at this point in time. For everyone. Well, most people. I didn't agree with any of it. I just wanted to make music. I wasn't doing this to drink or take somebody home. The band to me was everything. And it all came to a halt when the boys started hitting on my best friend. And then one of them slept with her while she was drunk and I lost it. And during one short rehearsal, it all imploded. Not mature enough to handle what we were doing, after a huge fight, we all just walked away. Almost a year after starting Curio Museum, I applied and was accepted into Georgia State University and realized I was still unknowingly living in Kyle's shadow. We got in his acceptance letter a few weeks after he died. But this was also what I wanted, right? To finally go to art school? My childhood dream? I continued to break into the piano practice rooms on campus by flirting with the security guards, pretending to be a student. But now, I actually would be a student and could write and practice anytime I wanted. Soon, I would be outliving him. What would happen then? The intensity of the world imploding got closer and closer as I started to creep up on my 22nd birthday. I was doing everything I'd always dreamed of, but was still filled with this dread. What would happen once I outlived Kyle, no longer in his shadow, and turned 22? Dear Young Rocker, Season 4. We've got 12 episodes coming this season. Check back every Wednesday for new episodes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to share your own Young Rocker experience, you can follow me on Instagram at Nadia Marie Forever. You can also follow us at Dear Young Rocker and at Double Elvis on Instagram. This season of Dear Young Rocker is written and hosted by me, Nadia Marie. Dear Young Rocker was created by and is executive produced by Chelsea Erson. The show is executive produced by Jake Brennan, Brady Sadler, and Carly Carioli for Double Elvis. Script editing on this episode by Chelsea Erson and James Sullivan. Production by Sean Cahalan and Leah Tatoris. Music for this episode was composed and performed by me, Nadia Marie. You can check out my music, Nadia Marie, on all streaming platforms. Thanks. We'll see you next week.